It's good to see so many of you here. This is the first of a series of lectures sponsored by Rare Book School, a summer venture of the School of Library Service, and the first of many such ventures, I suspect, in view of the considerable financial success, at least, that we're enjoying with this one. There will be lectures uh, practically all the time for the next four weeks around here, to which you're all cordially invited. In particular, John Bidwell, the Reference and Acquisitions Librarian at the William Andrews Clark Memorial Library at the University of California, Los Angeles, will be speaking on Thursday of this week on various aspects of early 19th century American papermaking, hard times at the Brandywine paper mill. The other seven lectures in this series are advertised in a little brochure with a lion on the front, copies of which will be available at the reception directly after the lecture this evening, the reception to be held next door in the air-conditioned room 505. Please come and join us afterwards for something cold and conversation with our speaker, who this evening is Mr. Edwin Wolf, the librarian of the Library Company of Philadelphia, and a person who, even less than usual, for speakers at this podium, uh, needs any introduction whatsoever, and uh, though he deserves an introduction of much more polish than he is receiving, he gets none. Mr. Edwin Wolf. Thank you, Terry. Uh, that was a pleasant thing for a hot day. It's uh, said that there's a recipe for rabbit stew that begins, first catch your hair. In order to establish, or since I shall wander through my past few decades, re-establish the reputation of a library, one must first find an institution in need of help. It's not good policy to canvas along dusty and forgotten bibliothecal lanes and offer your services like a trollop. Boards of directors do not take kindly to solicitation the inference that perhaps their lethe-like policies have permitted the library, the museum, the society to sink from public view. Cultural reputations like sterling silver tarnish from for want of polishing, not necessarily through loss of solid worth. It's advisable to be in the right place at the right time, a truism with such widespread validity that its application to the library world may not be as obvious as the phrase. There are various circumstances that create the critical time, the accession of new and dynamic leadership, a dramatic change in the finances for the better, sensational scholarly discoveries, or, less frequently, public and media pressure. Sometimes the availability of expertise triggers a latent desire to do something. Sometimes a significant anniversary is a blooming force. Since this is by way of being a clinical study, 
Permit me to abandon the impersonal and talk of the library company as it was in 1952 and what it's become. Apparently, it's well thought of, or I wouldn't have been able asked to talk on building a reputation. At the time of the nation's centennial, the library company was recognized as one of the country's largest and best libraries. Its, librarians Lloyd P. its librarian, Lloyd P. Smith, one of the founders of the American Library Association, was a Philadelphian of distinguished ancestry. He was a direct descendant of that greatest of all colonial American bookman, James Logan. It was he who wrote, Custos librorum nascitur non fit. It is understandable that this has not been adopted as a motto by any library school. Maybe I better, maybe I better translate because I didn't get any laughs on that one. <laughs> the caretakers of books are born, not made. It's uh, Smith enjoyed the respect of his colleagues internationally. Under his administration, two new buildings were opened. The Brick Library, designed by Frank Furness at Juniper and Locust Streets, which housed the circulating collection for the use of members, and the handsome Parthenonic Ridgeway Library at Broad and Christian, erected by the executor of and with the funds provided by Dr. James Rush. It may be that 1879, the year that marked the removal of books from the old library hall on Fifth Street to the two new sites, was paradoxically the peak of the library company's post-18th century fortune and the beginning of a slow devolution. Old, no longer current books were immured in South Philadelphia, together with the mortal remains of Dr. and Mrs. James Rush. Separated from the scholarly companionship of their historic fellows, the books uptown took on a lighter, more ephemeral tone. More and more novels filled the shelves. The subject areas which continued to receive informed consideration were biography, travel, and selectively history, overwhelmingly books written in English. The old books, in what Lloyd Smith boasted in the second issue of the Library Journal as a fireproof structure, were relegated to a subsidiary status. Nods to the past appeared in the periodical lists of recent accessions, but the past was only nodded to verbally. The collections were used by a few hardy bibliographers aware of the library company's holdings of Americana, men such as Joseph Sabin, Charles Hildeburn, and Charles Evans in the 19th century, and Clarence Brigham and Lawrence Roth in the 20th. The wealth of medical and scientific books remained in limbo except for an article on the Loganian copy of Newton's Principia, the first to cross the Atlantic. Many of the Incanabula did indeed find a place in the 1919 census of American ownership. 
the earliest version of Pollard and Redgrave's short title catalog did not include any of the library's rarities and Wing's continuation but sparsely recorded them. The printed catalogs of the library company, 1835 and 1856, and the Loganian Library, 1837 and 1867, had been widely circulated and were available in most of the major libraries of the country as they existed in the pre-centennial era. But the day of the production of the small-scale printed catalogs was coming to an end, and the shelves of obsolescing volumes gathered dust as more accessible space was made for the mastodonic British Museum, Bibliothèque Nationale, and Library of Congress compilations grinding on to their first alphabetical completion. The situation of the library company after the turn of the century was complicated by the hostility between the librarian and the assistant in charge of the Ridgeway Library. In 1907, George Maurice Abbott, long in the employ of the library, was elected librarian. His main interest was in providing sufficiently popular reading material in sufficiently satisfactory quantity to the ladies and gentlemen who came in to scan the shelves of new publications at Juniper and Locust Streets or sent their butlers or coachmen, later chauffeurs, to pick up chosen titles from the lists of available new books. So far as I have been able to learn from admittedly prejudiced sources, Abbott was not a scholar, he was not interested in scholarship, he was not in any real sense a bookman. He wrote a very brief history of the library company, published in 1913, that has a fascinating, single fascinating paragraph on the treasures in the collection. Unfortunately, a number of these were exposed in cases in the uptown library so long that the title pages are light crisp. The old books at Broad and Christian under his administration were there, and that was all. At the Ridgeway Library, J. Bunford Samuel held sway. No knight of chivalry guarded the virtue of his lady love more zealously than Bunny Samuel cared for the old books relegated to his custody. The confusing, sometimes inaccurate, and entries in the printed catalogs, the curious handwritten slips of the third quarter of the 19th century, and the more modern cards of the 20th presented no problems to him. He knew the books, and he had no need for the bibliothecal tools. Let it be said, his knowledge, for he was like Abbott on the job trained, was principally of the American rarities. He was, however, strident in his attempt to make the directors aware of the importance of the vast resources in his charge. Abbott and the directors resented the stridency. South Philadelphia remained South Philadelphia, and it was psychological, Psychologically, you have to be a Philadelphian to understand this, another world to the vast majority of the library company's members. 
I only rehearse this past, not so much to describe the depths of that past's insensitivity as to provide an example of the kind of situation, mutatis mutandis, that I know exists in the byways of the library world. I can assure you that opportunities still exist for polishing up tarnished sterling silver. <coughs> Let me resume my clinical study. In the 1930s, Austin Gray, an Englishman and an English professor, became librarian. He tried to stimulate interest in the antiquarian aspects of the library company. He wrote a bicentennial history of the library that was charmingly phrased, somewhat historically inaccurate, and alas, in the Depression, at which time it was published, ineffective in gaining major support and in stemming the etiolation of the institution's financial assets. Gray knew that there were great books hidden on the shelves of the library, but with scant knowledge of rare books as a whole, and the lukewarm appreciation of his efforts on the part of the membership, his attempt to inspirit the library failed. I, a major undertaking that might have started the library on the way to a more distinguished existence was the consolidation of the three catalogs, a project administered and carried out by the Works Project Administration personnel after the Juniper and Locust Street was emptied of its books in 1940, and they were brought down and consolidated in the Ridgeway Library. It turned out to be a well-intentioned but badly executed exercise in catalog reform. All the cards were typed verbatim from the old entries in the printed catalogs and on the handwritten slips and more recent type cards. No entries were checked against books. No editing was done, not even for typographical errors. All the cards in their imperfect sight were sent to the National Union catalog whence ghosts come back year after year to haunt us. I paint this gloomy picture only to indicate the depths from which the library rose. After Gray retired as librarian, the directors chose to ask the Free Library of Philadelphia to act as corporate librarian for an annual fee and the right to operate a free library branch in the cathedral-like reading room. The brick structure at Juniper and Locust was torn down. Nobody in 1940 was concerned that its architect was Frank Furness, a comparatively recent Philadelphia rediscovery. He of the now sanctified Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. A parking lot was opened on the site. It was successful. <laughs> the lot operator, working with a percentage lease, suggested a multi-story parking building to be paid for installments out of the profits. By 1952, the cost of the building was well on the way to being liquidated. The percentage lease was bringing in six-figure gross income. W. Logan Fox was treasurer and the dominant influence on the board. He was a direct descendant of James Logan. He wanted, if possible, to bring the library company back to something like its former glory.
the constellations in their conjunction in the spring of 1952 must have been smiling on Fox Wolf and the library company. After many disagreements and long smoldering mutual dissatisfaction, I faced up to Philip Rosenbach and quit. Dr. R. couldn't understand why I hadn't done it sooner. This would seem to have nothing to do in this zoological sequence with Fox, were it not for the fact that his father had been the Rosenbach's first backer and the Walnut Street landlord. As his father's successor, Logan had collected rent for years and hence knew the Rosenbachs and inclusively knew me. He knew that as, as of April 1, I was unemployed. Nicholas Biddle Wainwright, then assistant to the director of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and editor of the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, was in our interwoven Philadelphia cultural pattern, also president of the library company. History was his profession. We now get to the meat of my advertised subject. You will remember that two of the factors that I posited as leading up to rejuvenation were a financial surplus and available expertise. These came together in the spring of 1952. The library company, quite sensibly, decided to find out what its book and manuscript assets were before it moved, if indeed it should move, in a new direction. I was asked if I would make a six-month survey of the library and then come up with recommendations for its future. To be sure, some of the valuable items had been segregated as, quote, rare books in a second-floor room, but they only filled about a dozen shelves in six cupboards. That room also housed the large manuscript collections, Rush, Smith, McAllister, Reed, Dickinson, and Morton, as well as lesser lots. Some of these had been, over the years, quite adequately catalogued. Others were still terrae incogniti. The scientific, linguistic, historical, and medical riches of the libraries of James Logan and his brother, Dr. William Logan of Bristol, were indeed like a new world. My sniffing of bibliophilic flowers along the Loganian balcony was interrupted when warm weather came along. Heat rose and was trapped under the skylights above the reading room in the upper levels of the old stacks. When I started dripping, I knew that in the interests of conservation, I had to move to the basement level. At this stage of my investigations, I was merely sampling the shelves and learning the complexities of the arrangement and the catalog. My mentor was Barney Chesnick, short, bald, and nervous, officially the free library's branch librarian, but one who had come to the library company as a young boy and been indoctrinated by the aging Bunford Samuel to respect old books, even though they were gathering dust rather than admirers. Without Barney's enthusiastic collaboration, 
I never would have made organized headway in the labyrinthine stacks. One had to remember that there was no room for certain classes when they normally should have appeared, and then remember where they were tucked away. Barney was delighted that at last Mr. Samuel was being justified, and the board had decided that the Ridgeway books might be important. Here was I up a ladder shouting, Barney, come look at this. Holy jumping Joseph at it's got Jefferson's manuscript notes. One of my early finds was that, although there were six different catalog cards, five of them inaccurate, for the Philadelphia 1774 reprint of Jefferson's A Summary View of the Rights of British America, there was none for the original Williamsburg edition. I found two copies of that rarity, both with corrections and additions in Jefferson's hand. But this kind of thing was becoming a daily occurrence. The more I sampled, the more I was impressed. This, this wasn't a little old collection of Bradford and Franklin imprints of revolutionary pamphlets. There were, as Tom Adams had found working there in a salad day and recorded in a type checklist, Plains and Rocky Works. There were huge scrapbooks full of Philadelphia prints and photographs and others with 18th century broadsides. There were wing books in respectable numbers and a surprising hoard of early French works. And there were literally hundreds of bound volumes of pamphlets which could and did contain amazing neighbors such as Two charters granted by King Charles II to the proprietors of Carolina, London, 1698, with Isaac Lee's description of a new mollusk, Philadelphia, 1855, and Richard Peters' sermon on education, Philadelphia, Franklin and Hall, 1751, cheek by jowl with the Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute annual reports, Hampton, 1881. It was immediately obvious that the first step in a process of rehabilitation would have to be the identification, reshelving, and recataloging of the more valuable books. Pamphlet volumes that were not association items had to be broken up to separate the weak from the chaff. It's ironic that my second example of incongruity just cited the Hampton report, initially chaff, became a good grain of wheat when we issued our Afro-American checklist. There are many steps to be taken on the road to Renaissance. I have set the background of my own experience at the library company. Let me for a while combine the specific with the general. There's nothing like an outside expert. Nobody really believes what a local authority has to say, at least not in Philadelphia, and I would guess not in most other cities. Good old Joe may have an international reputation, but to his fellow citizens, he's still good old Joe. So after Joe has looked into resources and possibilities and depths, by all means, call in your exogenous pundits. It's obvious that in the two or three days they have to look, question, and consult, 
much dependence has to be on the advice and guidance of someone on the spot. In the case of the library company and of some other institutions, this presented no problem. The questions the lay leaders really wanted to have answered first were, is the silver really sterling? And then, how does one go shining, uh, go about shining it up? I was able, as the resident explorer, to convince the four experts the directors of the library brought in Bill Jackson of Harvard, Rice of the New York Public Library, Lloyd Brown of the Peabody Library, and Ted Shipton of the American Antiquarian Society, that the historic and scholarly resources were far greater and far more significant than anyone had realized. The case was so obvious that it didn't take much convincing. Having been assured of the value of the collection and the worth of change, trustees must define the institution's purpose. What indeed is its mission? How best can its resources be used? For whom does it continue to exist? In 1952, it was believed by the advisors and by me that the quality of the library's accessions had deteriorated after the removal to the two buildings in 1880. Amusement rather than useful knowledge governed much of the choice. Before 1880, in a general way, the accumulation represented the history and background of American culture more so to the middle of the 19th century when the library company was second only to Harvard, the largest library in the United States. Our visitors looked at the shelves of volumes acquired in the past 70 years and unanimously suggested that except for such works as might be useful for reference works in a library specializing in the history and background of American culture before 1880, the books printed after that date should be disposed of. Instead of a library operating chiefly for the benefit of its members, it should become a scholarly research library for the benefit of serious readers. Such a delimiting decision required drastic surgery. In the case of the library company, it meant getting rid of approximately 100,000 volumes. It can still be argued if that decision was correct. Is any deaccessioning justified? We followed the best advice we could get. One of the cogent reasons for thinning the collection was the complete lack of empty shelves. There was no room for expansion. Often the impediment to progress is an inadequate or outdated building and a poor location. Such was the situation of the library company. Leaking skylights and sclerotic steam pipes, a chronically wet basement, light fixtures adapted from gas to electricity, and stoning attacks on the windows by 10 and 11-year-old vandals added up to an imperative need to move. All the advisors recommended that as mandatory. 
But you must remember, that was before the government offered matching funds for new buildings, before mo most, most foundations had any interest in independent libraries, before most people had heard of the library company. So one is left in primitive circumstances. Trustees have to be convinced that the Novus Ordo Seculorum will usher in a more fruitful future. Money has to be raised or accumulated. Plans for another location and a new building have to be made. This takes time. In the case of the library company, 13 years. Don't give up. The wait is worth it. But during the wait, something has to be done to let the world know that life has been breathed in to the seemingly comatose body. Being an aficionado of the written word, it occurred to me, first appointed curator and in 1955 librarian, that it would help to let our members and then an ever-widening circle of friends and friendly institutions, let them know what amazing discoveries were being made and how we were building up those newfound strengths and depths of the collection. So I began giving speeches, presenting papers, and writing articles. I haven't stopped. In February 1954, we went national. Somewhat presumptuously, the library company invited the Grolier Club to come to Philadelphia and be entertained. We could hardly play the gracious host in the shabby, echoing hall of the Ridgeway Library, and it was freezing cold. So with President Wade Wright as our intermediary, we wined and dined our guests elegantly at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania on one night. The next day, we permitted them to roam the city, then in the initial stages of the Society Hill Renaissance. And the second evening, we asked some book collectors, members of the library company, Boyce Penrose, Robert Deckard, Moncure Biddle, Logan Fox, and a few others, to give dinner parties at their homes for the visitors who were parceled out in groups of four to six. The cuisine, the wine cellars, and the colonial charm of vintage Philadelphia homes was and is what is now known as world class. An off-print of my article on the first books and catalogs of the library company with a special Grolier Club imprint was handed out as a souvenir. The visit was a resounding success. From then on, the library was recognized by the nation's most sophisticated bookmen as a place to watch. A few months later, the Rosfita Club came to see what it was all about. In the spring of that year, an annual report of eight small pages was issued in the president's name. It mentioned briefly a handful of books that had been found in the ongoing recataloging process, an official Virginia publication presented by James Madison to Dr. George Logan, an account of Trinidad given by its author to Thomas Jefferson, John Dickinson's copies of the two preliminary printings of the Constitution, a book from Ben Johnson's library, 
The copy of La Page du Prats's History of Louisiana carried across the continent by Meriwether Lewis. And many volumes once owned by Henry Vaughan the Silurist, still the only ones that have turned up, William Byrd of Westover, Benjamin Franklin and Isaac Norris. The dimensions of James Logan's book buying began to be seen. These were but harbingers of harvests yet to come. So remarkable was the progress of pulling out all Americana printed before 1801 and everything else printed before 1701 and reshelving them in what had been a member's reading room unused since it was so delimited. So lucrative was the multi-level parking garage proving that in December 1955, the administrative connection with the free library was amicably severed. It was appropriate to confirm our independence and my assumption of responsibility for the management of the library that I should write a report of what had taken place during the year just past. The directors and the members, by formal vote, had agreed that money obtained from sale of duplicates and of books printed after 1880, not germane as reference works, would be used solely to increase the permanent collection. We are still selling duplicates. And I confess, a number of mid-19th century German landscape paintings that are not duplicates. I was therefore able to write about program, exciting discoveries, gifts that were beginning to trickle in, and new purchases. The concept was a ten-strike. The annual reports of the library company, this year's will be the 28th of its kind, have become the institution's most effective promotional medium. The enthusiastic way in which they've been received convinces me that time-consuming and brain-stretching as their composition may be, the reports are worth it. I developed my own style. There's no reason why others can't do likewise. Telling the world what you're doing is as important in creating and maintaining an image as anything you can do. Newsletters help, but they don't have the heft of an annual report, nor the permanence. We have reached the ultimate of our fame. Our reports are quoted in booksellers' catalogs. <clears throat> Another highly important step on the path out of limbo is to make sure that the holdings of your libraries get recorded in major bibliographies. As we turned up short title catalog books, we sent notes of them to Bill Jackson, then working on the revision of Pollard and Redgrave's compilation. We still send the latest such information to Kitsy Ponser 27 years later. We checked and we rechecked our American novels for right our American directories for Drake, our early American medical books for Austin. We've got to the point when we're annoyed when a bi bibliographer of material we could logically be expected to have doesn't ask us for help. The Scouten revision of the bibliography of Swift's works was able, unable to locate one or two titles that were but a short bus ride away from the revisor.
a corollary to making certain that your holdings are fully and accurately recorded in bibliography is publishing yourself. Our first effort was a facsimile of the 1741 catalog of the library company with an introduction by me issued to mark the 250th anniversary of the birth of Benjamin Franklin. The birthday was an opportunity for me as well to write articles and speak all to herald the library's reawakening. Never let an anniversary slip by without a publication or an event. The media don't care much for our esoteric wear, but they do like birthdays. In the early stages of the library company's rejuvenation, we found that we not only had hundreds of wing short title catalogs, short title catalog titles not located by wing in our library, but that many of them had provenances of distinction. So we published a slim volume in wing format of our holdings with an innovative Philip, known provinces indicated. Both the facsimile and the wing catalog were distributed, as was our, our annual report, to what was then a comparatively small list of eminent historians, rare book pundits, and major libraries. We moved on to celebrate the Civil War's centennial, in which I must admit I had a minimum of personal interest. We issued a checklist of song sheets, slip ballads, and poetical broadsides, 1850 to 1870. It's the only guide to these ephemera. Being cited as the authority is part of the appeal battle to recognition. It would be of little purpose to march you piece by piece through subsequent publications. But exhibitions and exhibition catalogs came next. When we moved into our new Locust Street building in 1966, we were able, thanks to door-through propinquity to the Historical Society, to hold exhibitions jointly and on special occasions on our own. All the major exhibitions were recorded in catalogs of some substance, and now even smaller ones get a degree of permanence in pamphlet form. Our Negro History Show and its catalog led to the massive Afro-Americana checklist, which many of you may recognize as the bibliography of antiquarian booksellers' notes not in AA. The three institutional bicentennial show, Arising People, widely hailed as the best historical exhibition of that otherwise not too successfully celebrated anniversary, resulted in a copiously illustrated catalog that's still being used as a Revolutionary War reference work. Part of the fun of an exhibition is the opening bash. It may not sound very important in terms of creating an image, but the library company has acquired a great reputation as a host. The food, the company, the liquor, and the service have all been praised. We've given dinners or receptions for the Seventh International Congress of Bibliophiles, the International League of Antiquarian Booksellers, the Bibliographical 
Society of America, the Print Conference, to celebrate James Logan's birth, the public, the 200th anniversary of the Philadelphia Tea Party, the publication of the catalog of James Logan's library, the gift of Mrs. Wharton Sinkler's ornithological collection, and the staff celebrates birthdays, it seems, to the librarian almost every other week. The point is that the library company is not only an excellent place in which to do research, but it's a pleasant place to visit and to work in. There's nothing like success and publicity to keep morale high. The pervasive sense of excitement is catching. But then, if you really want to make a splash, you shake off a quarter of a millennium, for Johnny come lately's a quarter of a century will do, of precedence and have a ball. Not the common variety of ball with society women as hostesses and at least one or two of so-called TV personalities with tickets at $500 a head, but an unusual series of events under the big tent of a scholarship. It'll be expensive, but it'll make the news. There is no doubt that our old, old, very old institution uh, in today's world was confirmed by our recent celebration. In a way, it was the wave of the future. A quarter of a million dollars were made available without a penny from any governmental source. Perhaps we pioneered in cultivating the kind of garden that'll be all the thing in the coming National Foundation famine era. A final word of advice. Keep the image of your institution in the media. While arson, flood, rape, and murder are surefire entrees to preferred placement in newspapers and on the six o'clock news. I don't recommend them as do-it-yourself library attention getters. However, I would remind you that the Library of Congress, in order to get Jefferson's library, somehow seduced the British into burning its first collection. <clears throat> in my primitive early years, we had a so-called cataloger uh, before Terry Bellinger discovered us. We had a good many of that ilk whose previous experience included posing for life classes at the Philadelphia College of Art. She suggested that the series of nude photographs up and down the cast iron stairs and the old wooden stacks would be aesthetically imaginative and get us attention. What a shame I was a coward. <laughs> but remember, this was when not even Playboy matched the boldness of my bridge. Cultivate the cultural beagles of your hometown's press, radio, and television. But be aware that as copy prey, you're only a rabbit in comparison with big headline game. Discoveries and recoveries frequently get a play. When I worked at Rosenbach's, one of my duties was looking through the stock on the 4th of July, Lincoln's and Washington's birthday, other anniversaries, and 
the sudden emergence of people and places to front page prominence to find some pertinent book or document that could be announced as a sizzling discovery in a news release. The press never caught on. We discovered letters of great men year after year that had been offered in catalogs over and over again. I haven't tried this at the library company. We've done well, very well recently, with the gift of some Aikens photographs, an exhibition of books owned by Philadelphians, and the recovery of a book stolen five years ago. We're doing very well now with an exhibition celebrating the 300th anniversary of the founding of Germantown and the coming of Germans to America. I would be dishonest if immodest. It would be dishonest if immodest of me, not to mention uh, that it helps if the librarian is a known civic character. <laughs>